It's that time again. It's ASGCA Insights, the official podcast of the American Society of Golf Course Architects. And now, from our studios in beautiful Brookfield, Wisconsin, it's your host, Mark Whitney. Hello and welcome to ASGCA Insights. I'm Mark Whitney. My guest today is a caddy on the PGA Tour, Paul Tesori. Paul has spent more than 20 years on the tour and served as a full-time caddy for several players, including the last number of years with Webb Simpson. Paul, welcome to ASGCA Insights. Yeah, Mark, thank you for having me on. Uh, anytime I get to geek out on golf a little bit, I try to take the uh, advantage of that, and so I'm looking forward to today. Well, geeking out on golf is what we're all about, so let's have some fun here together. <laughs> let's, let's do uh, that. Paul, when I when I did the introduction, I intentionally said you were working with Webb Simpson and not for him. Uh, the relationship between a player and a caddy uh, is a partnership in many ways, isn't it? You know, it really is. Um, I've been fortunate to work with uh, four full-time guys, uh, VJ Singh, Jerry Kelly, Sean O'Hare, and now Weber for the last 12 years. And, you know, I played on tour a little bit in 97 and 99, uh, unsuccessfully as Bubba Watson tries to remind me every chance he has an opportunity to. Um, and that led me into uh, caddying. But the thing that I loved immediately about caddying is just the fact of it's the team atmosphere. Um, it's the you know, still the drive to be great, uh, the drive to get better, the drive to put a process into play. And then the best part was the sleep. I slept a lot better as a caddy than I did as a player, not worried about those three footers the next day that we were going to face. So um, I think partnership's the right thing to say. Webb gets mad when I say anything about him being the boss or that I work for him uh, and that other kind of stuff. But, you know, I, I really believe in my heart, it's the partnership and the really good ones that really be that they're successful. You've already touched on just a little bit, but give us a little background on, uh, on your golfing history. Who first brought you to the game? Yeah, so um, very fortunate. My grandfather uh, was a golfer. He was a starter here at the Ponte Vedra Inn and Club in Ponte Vedra Beach for about 20 years. And obviously he taught my dad. And when my dad got back from the military and he had a boy, he always promised that he would give him every opportunity to play the game um, that you know he didn't have when he was growing up. And so... My dad did exactly that. There were only really two sports for me that kind of that I was excelling at. That was baseball and golf. Um, I was 16 years old, about to go to my junior year. My dad said, you need to decide. And so I prayed about it, got hit in the head with a fastball the next day and said, all right, I got my sport, dad. I'm ready to go. So that was kind of when the golf career uh, took off. Um, uh, played four years in college, two at a community college and then two at uh, University of Florida, fortunate to win a national championship with both teams, a three-time All-American. Um, I was never a great player. Uh, it it kind of sounds like that, but I, I wasn't. There was always somebody on my team that was as good, if not better. Uh, University of Florida, we had Chris Couch and Brian Gay, both tour winners. Um, we had seven guys on that team, and you only start five that played either Corn Ferry or PGA Tour. And so, you know, every day was like a golf tournament. But uh, turned pro, um, after I graduated from college, got through Q school my first year and bam, uh, here I was on the PGA tour, 1997 tigers first full year. Um, I got out there, I got hurt. I tore my rotator cuff and, uh, unfortunately I tried to play through it. I didn't really know many other options and, uh, pretty soon worked myself into a place I never could recover from. Ended up developing kind of the full swing yips. Uh, once the pain had gone away, the brain never came back. Um, always wished that they would have had a little lobotomy while I was in there to maybe help out with the brain cells. But 
Um, I quit playing full-time in 99 and was teaching uh, when VJ called in 2000. And so what, what got you the first time to consider that caddying was an option to, to stay and work in the game? There had to be something, I assume, before the, the phone call from VJ. Well, there really wasn't. Um, it was kind of a quick thing. Again, I was teaching full-time. I'd been teaching on and off for the previous two years and was teaching full-time at a private club up in Uly, Florida. And, you know, obviously, I think anybody that has been in the uh, PGA program, anybody that's kind of working their way up, you know, money wasn't great. Um, I was having a blast. I love helping people, love watching people get better. But money wasn't great. And in the summer of 2000, out of the middle of nowhere, VJ did call. Um, and I wasn't ready for what was coming. He said, hey, been struggling with my game. You know, here's a two-time major winner at the time. And struggling with my game. Uh, you know, would you mind coming out to TPC today, just taking a look at things? I did. He liked what we talked about. He goes, I have a week coming up where I don't have anybody caddy for me. Would you like to? And, you know, me, of course, at the time, you know, not making a whole lot of money. I'm like, sure. And my boss gave me the week off. We, we played great top 10, worked on some things, and he offered me the job at the end of the week. So it, it kind of came very, very quickly uh, for me and uh, very quickly kind of thrown into, you know, the, the limelight of it all. But also what you and I just talked about a little bit ago, Mark, was – kind of the process orientation for me. I love the process of getting better, no matter what we're doing, no matter if it's teaching, no matter if it's business, no matter if it's caddy and, or, you know, I still work pretty hard on my game as a player and, you know, you're always trying to get better. And there was definitely one thing we know VJ was all about trying to get better. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's no one on tour that you're going to spend more time with after the round at the range than VJ is there. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's some famous stories about him, but I don't think any of them doing justice. Uh, you know, I try to tell people in 2001, I had 11 days off out of 365. And in 2002, I had 12. And the crazy thing, VJ took one off total in those two years. And it was a complete rain out on Christmas, I think in 01. But, you know, it's amazing. VJ's drive to be the greatest that he could be um, was second to none. Uh, there are plenty of guys that work hard, but you know, VJ, his profession was golf. His addiction was golf. His hobby was golf. Uh, he dreamt about golf. He celebrated his holidays were, you know, the four majors. And so it was just kind of a different mindset. And if you look at kind of the life that he came through, man, uh, it's not hard to see that he had to have something different to go from Fiji, uh, to the hall of fame. But that first experience had to be career changing, if not life changing for you. Had that been a bad experience that this might have been an area of the business that you walked away from altogether? Yeah. You know, Mark, I didn't know. So VJ and I worked together uh, three years the first time around um, from 2000, 2003. We had a lot of success, um, won a bunch of golf tournaments. But, you know, the thing that it, it was really, really hard, uh, you know, I lost a marriage in the middle of it and that is not his fault. That's my fault. Uh, too much work, you know, too young to really understand, uh, that I needed to spend a lot more time at home. Um, I fell into a little bit of a depression through it all. And again, not his fault. Just when you're working that much, your whole world becomes golf. And I just didn't have a lot to fall back on. So there were some hard times off the course, on the course, you know, you love the respect that you're getting, kind of the notoriety you're getting. Uh, the money was amazing. So, you know, that was a big part of it. And again, that process that I keep going back to. So when VJ and I split up, I didn't think I really wanted to get back into caddy. And I thought I was done. That would have been 2003. And 
I went, I did a couple interviews with some local country clubs. I knew they had pros. I was just going to get back into the program. Um, I also went and submitted my application to a bank. Um, I had a finance degree, so I thought maybe that might be something to do. And boy, I started looking at how much money they were making and how many hours they were putting in. I'm like, oof, I don't know about this. But I was fortunate that about four weeks after uh, VJ and I split up, um, Jerry Kelly called. And, you know, Jerry said, Paul, I've watched how hard you work. I'd love for you to come work for me. Um, I said, sure. And we had a lot of success right out of the gates. Um, you know, we were able to win. We were able to do a President's Cup team together over in South Africa. And I think that was the first time I realized, okay, that this is something I'm actually good at. It's something that I, I do enjoy. Uh, you know, working for Jerry was so incredibly different than working for VJ. Um, both had their strengths, both had their weaknesses, but I liked that aspect of kind of personalities, you know, kind of fitting in and learning how to get the best out of your player, uh, no matter how different those personalities were. So I knew basically during that stretch with Jerry that this was something that I wanted to do uh, probably for a living. Well, our, our, our ASGCA headquarters are in Brookfield, Wisconsin. So we are not far away from Jerry Kelly's home in Madison. There's a, a soft spot here in Wisconsin for all things Jerry Kelly. So I'll put you on the spot. Give me, you talk about personalities. Give, give me a Jerry Kelly story. Well, I have a bunch. Um, I, I'm going to start with a couple of my favorites that I think the listeners will enjoy. So, you know, you always watch players will throw clubs to a caddy. You know, if you're getting out of a bunker, throw balls to a caddy. Um, and you know, as you could imagine, anyone that knows Jerry, um, Jerry likes to do things very aggressively. And so I had to be ready every time. First of all, the ball was going to be coming in at about 15 miles an hour, you know, so I had to be ready for a quick snap. If I missed it, I was running a hundred yards down the fairway to go get it. And if I really missed it, it might've gotten me in the noggin. So I had to be ready for that in the clubs. And then my favorite part was, you know, if your guy holds a chip or makes a long putt, you might give him a little chest bump. Well, Jerry was a guy, if you went in to do it, you better be ready because he was going to come at you with everything he had. Jerry was a, a hockey player and a golfer's talent. Um, he, uh, he had that mentality. He was really, really tough. Um, he wanted to kind of scrap. He wanted to kind of get in your face. He wanted to be aggressive and get pumped up. And um, there's no doubt I had some good bruises from Jerry. Um, and so I learned after probably about six months that, okay, I really need to pick my moments here with Jerry uh, or I'm going to end up having a short career caddying. And you mentioned that for the past 12 years, you've been with Webb Simpson. How did you come together with Webb? And I think more importantly, how has that relationship evolved with him over time? Yeah. Wow. Very, very deep uh, question, which I like. So it'll take a little bit of time. Um, how I came to work with Webb, we'll attack that first. Um, I was working for Sean O'Hare in 08, 09, and 10. Um, Sean and I had a lot of success together. Three wins, top 20 in the world, uh, President's Cup team out in San Francisco. Um, late in 2010, uh, for the first time in my life, I was fired. Um, you know, Sean and I had a lot of success. Uh, it was the first time him and I had missed the tour championship. We only made it through the first three playoff events. And he just thought that, you know, he might want to want to try something different. So to be honest with you, I was pretty shocked. Uh, 2010, we were in the middle of that huge, uh, kind of crash with, uh, the financial sector. Uh, I had lost all my money in the real estate uh, you know, kind of problems that were going on. I, I, one of those guys that paid about two fifty and sold for 75, the opposite of what's happening nowadays. So, um, I was kind of, I had gone, uh, through everything that I had made. So it was a pretty rough time in my life. Um, 
And I didn't really know what I wanted to do next. I had just become uh, a Christian. I'd just been saved. And so one of the things I wanted to look for in my next job was a long-term relationship. All of my jobs had lasted about three years. And at that level, with the amount of stress and pressure that we're under constantly, and I'm a type A personality, obviously my players are too. So there can be a lot of struggle that takes place in that. But I was looking for just someone with a long-term relationship. And come December of 2010, I had two offers from guys that were both top tens in the top 10 in the world. I just didn't think the personality fits were going to be great. I was about to accept a job with one of those two players when Webb called and Webb was 213th in the world, uh, had just kept his card in the last term of the year, the year before. And I didn't know a lot about Webb. I just knew what kind of guy he was. I didn't really know anything about him as a player. And five minutes into the conversation, I decided to take the job. And I can still remember all of my family and friends thinking, what are you doing? Paul, you need to really reconsider here. You've got these great opportunities with guys that are, they got their you know, feet on the ground, they're top 10 in the world, they're making a ton of money. I was like, I know I just, I really want to work for a younger guy. And I want to work for somebody who I think I could be with for a long-term um, relationship. And Lo and behold, that was the end of 2010 and we're in 2022 and, and Weber and I are still going, um, you know, so it, it was a little bit, um, obviously of chance in my, in my mind, it was a lot of, just a lot of faith that it took to stay with Weber. But I wrote down all these goals for our first year together. I'll never forget them because it taught me a lot about it's, this isn't only sport, this is in business and everything as well. But I wrote down my goals. My goals were $2 million for the year with Weber in 2011, our first year together, I wanted to get in the top 100 in the world from 213. Um, I wanted to have seven top 10s uh, and 14 top 25s. That was my goal for the year. And those were very lofty. That had been more money than he had made in his career at the time, more top 10s than he had had, and more top 25s. And at the end of that year, we made 9.3 million, um, finished second on the FedEx Cup, uh, won twice, had 12 top 10s and 19 top 25s. Uh, and it was a very valuable lesson for me. First of all, you know, goals need to be very careful. Um, you can quickly surpass those goals. And then what do you do from there? And the next thing was kind of limitations. Um, I thought Webb and I would have certain limitations just because of the fact that he hadn't accomplished the things in the sport that other guys had at the time. But for the last time, it kind of showed me, I think my tools are best used with younger players that just haven't quite found their footing yet. Uh, the next part of your question was, you know, how has the relationship changed? And it's changed mightily. Uh, when I started working for Webb, he had zero kids. He now has five, 11 and under. Um, so I'm working for a different man. Um, Webb lost his father in 2017. And, you know, ever since his dad passed away, I really think Webb has taken on a lot of his strength. So probably the first three years, it was a lot of handholding for me when it came to Webb, just helping him learn about how to play on the PGA Tour successfully, how to kind of build your game to be a top 10 player in the world. Um, and then after those three years, we had probably two years of, we, we struggled a little bit together in our relationship, just a lot of clashing heads. And I look back on it now, it was my fault, not his. I just, the guy right in front of me, the kid right in front of me was obviously growing into a, a full-fledged man, a man at home that is an incredible husband, an incredible dad. And I just hadn't seen the transformation yet. And now I work for a guy that really doesn't need any of the things he needed very early on for me. I'm kind of there more of an encourager. Um, you know, I'm still kind of part-time coach, me and, and Butch Harmon. We kind of split those duties together with Webb. 
And so that's more what he needs out of me now, which is completely different than what he needed early on in our career together. I want to go back. There's a, a lot to cover, and I thank you for the detail in, in your in your response. He was 213th in the world when you have that conversation that you said five minutes into it, you knew that you wanted to work with him. And you set a goal right away to get to the top 100. And it's very easy to throw those couple of numbers around, but that's a lot of real estate to get from 213 into the top 100. You must have seen something in his game as well, whether he had seen it at that time or not. Yeah, Mark, I wish this is the time I could sit back and lie to you and say, I did. Boy, you know, I would be a great, you know, you know, guy in the baseball field to go out and try to judge to see how good these players are. Um, but my my true story is I, I Webb said, and he said this many times, but Paul interviewed me instead of me interviewing him. His wife asked him when he got done, he goes, Well, honey, I got interviewed by him, not the other way around. And the biggest thing I was worried about was sometimes men of faith in sports. I feel like they kind of handcuff themselves thinking that they're not allowed to be great or supposed to be great, which I completely disagree with. I think that we're given a platform and that platform has been made to use, like obviously to kind of share not only your faith, but also to help those in need. And so for me, I wanted to make sure that his desires were strong and they very much were, he wanted to be a great player. And so when I heard that in kind of, when we were talking on the phone for the first time, I knew, okay, he has the desire. I looked and he had had some strong finishes when he first came out of college. Um, and so I knew there was a talent level in there. And when I first watched him practice, I actually thought, oh boy, maybe I've made a mistake. He just, you know, if you've seen Webb's golf swing, it's a little bit different. Uh, it's not as aesthetic, aesthetically pleasing to the eye as some of the other guys. And, you know, we're in that world right now, the modern age where you have so many of these big, strong strapping guys that are hitting it you know, 310 and Webb didn't have that. But what I very quickly realized with Weber is his brain was so much stronger than almost anyone else on tour. His ability to put things in its right place, his ability to have a desire, even if things didn't work out well today, I can't wait for tomorrow. Um, a very positive outlook about kind of what's coming and what the future is. And so as we started working together, it was just a lot about kind of getting him out of the college mindset of how to play the game and kind of getting him into the tour mindset of how to play the game. A lot more drivers off the tee, you know, getting a workout program into place, um, having an understanding of what our golf swing looks like, not the golf swing, but our golf swing looks like. Um, and after a couple of events, I saw, okay, you know, he definitely has the tools. If he's already kept his card for two years, kind of with what he was doing, I really think what's coming, you know, could be pretty special. Again, I didn't think he'd be in the top 10 at the end of the year, which he was. Um, I didn't think that he would, you know, not only win twice, but had a massive lead in the FedEx Cup going to the last tournament at Eastlake. And so I didn't really understand and would have won player of the year had Luke Donald not done something special the last term of the year at Disney, shot 30 on his back nine to to beat us and end up winning the player of the year. And so those things I did not see. Um, but there were a lot of things about his character and about his brain that I didn't know of at the time. Does he know that at the first time you watched him practice, you were wondering if you'd made a mistake? Yes. Oh yes, absolutely. And I, <laughs> he's told me before he goes, I don't really know what I think about that. I'm like, that's okay, buddy. You just, uh, you know, it's just what it is. Um, I was more dogging on myself instead of dogging on him. I just, they were just things that he didn't understand. He's such a feel guy. Everything he does, he wants to do by feel. Um, when I first started working for him, he didn't really like video. Um, he didn't really like to do drills. He didn't really like to, you know, work on mechanics. He just kind of wanted to go play golf and that's fine. 
But sadly, um, you know, the college world to the tour world, it's littered with guys that were can't miss kids that never made it. And either number one, they were too perfectionist oriented or number two, they didn't want to work on the things that they needed to work on. And again, that's what I learned. VJ taught me everything. He really did. Um, you know, I'm so fortunate for that opportunity he gave me, but VJ was all about one thing. And that's the process. Uh, the guy would average 500 balls a day and on the range and every ball had an intentional aspect to that golf ball. Uh, sometimes it would be just to fool me. We would be working on something. He would do it well for, I don't know, 60 great swings in the middle of nowhere. He would do it bad and he would just be testing me. Uh, to see if I would catch what he just did wrong. And so that's how intentional he was. And obviously that's on one end of the spectrum, but on the other end of the spectrum would be, you know, just kind of the freaks like Bubba, uh, a good friend, uh, maybe a hall of famer one day, but a guy that just doesn't practice that much, doesn't really do that much as far as working on mechanics or anything, and just has a natural gift to play the game. And so the real answer is probably somewhere right in the middle. Speaking with PGA Tour caddy, Paul Tesori. Paul, here at ASTCA Insights, we, of course, like to touch on all things architecture. Uh, do you consider the course architect when you are plotting with Webb how you attack a golf course? I mean, uh, does it matter to you if this week you're playing a, a Pete Dye course or next week it's a Donald Ross? Are, are there architects that you'd like to see or design elements that carry over from one course to another? Mark, I feel like somehow you have my house bugged um, because you just mentioned probably two of my favorites. Um, and I, so I, I do get pretty passionate about architecture, um, especially kind of the modern architecture. I know I have to be careful because obviously with ASGCA and, you know, everything else, like I have so much respect for the difficulty and the intricacies that go into architecture. I just believe that a lot of the modern architecture is, isn't taking into account like how to challenge kind of the modern player also allow the members, um, you know, your 12 to 18 handicappers to be successful, but then how do we still challenge longer hitters? And we just left one of the greatest golf courses in the world about how to challenge both the longer hitters and still be friendly to the shorter hitters as well, meaning your amateurs or even shorter tour players. And that's colonial. Um, you go to Colonial and there's just so many dog legs, so many shots that you kind of have to shape around corners, uh, you know, fairways that are a little bit tighter, rough that isn't too long, um, but long enough, uh, you know, to still challenge with jumpers in the green, greens that are small, slightly undulating and, you know, in a little firm as well. And, you know, so one of the first things Webb and I talk about every single season before we go is, okay, hey, does this course fit, you know, kind of what we want to do? And, when we start going through Pete dies, a, a really good one for us that we enjoy, um, whether that's down at PGA national or whether that's uh, Hilton head uh, at Harbor town or TPC sawgrass. Um, we kind of go through those and they're just, they're generally fairly tight. They generally make you work the ball left and right, right to left. They kind of mix up trouble, some troubles on the left, some troubles on the right. Um, and they really challenge kind of everything about the game and they, they get rid of for the most part. Now I know there's some, areas here you can attack but the one thing that i dislike the most about architecture is just forced carries um i grew up on a donald ross golf course um way down here in st augustine florida at, Pont, uh, at uh, ponce de leon unfortunately it's not there anymore um they lost it's now a housing complex but i grew up on a donald ross golf course and so i love everything about that um you know a little bit tree lined again small greens runoffs on the sides uh, let's see how your distance control is let's see how your short game is Let's see if you can put the ball in the right place and think your way around. So 
um, when Webb and I are making our schedule, um, that's what we're trying to look for. Okay. Hey, can we find a shot makers golf course that minimizes force carries and also has smallish greens? Um, you know, love, uh, Pebble beach for those same reasons. Love Sony out at Wiley. A lot of people think that's kind of a boring golf course, but it's really genius in the way that you still have a short golf course that challenges the players. Um, you know, we have TPC Sawgrass where the fourth hole at um, TPC, I believe, is 395. And it's one of the top five hardest holes each year. We just left Colonial where the ninth hole is 397. And it finished fifth for the week in difficulty. Um, I just love those kind of short to mid-length par fours that challenge everything that you're trying to do. You got to hit it straight. You got to shape the golf ball and have good distance control. You know, it, it seems every year, and you've touched on it a little bit in talking about your background, uh, that there are players and caddies that make changes, who's working with whom going into the new year, et cetera. And, and I'm trying to get an overall understanding of, of how amicable these changes are in terms of the average TV fan that, that can understand this. Is it more like an episode of the bachelor or is it the real housewives of Atlanta? <laughs> um, okay. Good question. Let's see. I'm going to go with the real housewives of Atlanta. Um, I'm going to go that way. Uh, the, bachelor, cool. <laughs> the, the bachelor's kind of set up, I think a little bit more uh, for success. There's a lot of pretty people where if, if anyone's seen the, any telecast lately, it's not necessarily that way when it comes to players and caddies. So we're going to go with the other one, but you know, it's the caddy player relationship. It's, it's so unique. I tell a lot of people and I don't know what I'm allowed to say, but it's like marriage with no sex. Um, you know, it's just, uh, it's great and everything, but it's not going to be able to really, uh, have the, the full version of what it could be. And so, you know, there's just, it's such a high profile, a high pressure, high stress level job. Personalities are incredibly different. Um, and players are flat out wacko. Um, and the problem is most caddies were players. And so there's some wackiness to the caddies as well. Um, I think if anything, players think they never do anything wrong. And I think if anything, caddies think that uh, the game's way too easy. And so one of my things that I try to tell caddies to do, and I do myself, is, hey, try to compete, stay competitive. I try to play in four to six tournaments a year, individual tournaments where my scores are posted. You can see them anywhere where I have to play and compare because we lose compassion very, very quickly as caddies. And I think one of the things that players want the most is that compassion. They want someone to feel a little sorry for them. And if you don't have that in you very quickly, there can start being some strain on that relationship. And I mean, the last kind of aspect of that is, is, you know, we have to remember that the player is the boss and each guy I've worked for, I've been a little different. I can't say the same things to Webb that I used to say to Beach. I definitely can't say the same things to Webb that I used to say to Sean or Jerry. And so each guy is different. You have to find each button that's going to press is going to be a little bit different. Um, when you're trying to get them going with Jerry, I would just say, Hey, look at this guy over here, but he's whomping on you right now. How can you let him beat you? And that would fire him up right away. Yeah. How can I let him beat you? But if I did that to Sean, he couldn't have cared less with Sean. I had to find a different way. Like, how can you hit the ball like this? You need to be on the corn ferry tour. Like, what are you doing right now? Like, you know, you, you need to be better than this. And then with Veej, you know, it would be just something different. Like how many balls are we hitting this afternoon? Um, and then with, with Weber, I can just give him some scripture. Uh, and so it's a lot easier dealing with him, but you know, every guy's different. We have to be a little bit of a chameleon, no matter who we're working for. So let's go inside the ropes here a little bit with a, with, with a handful of questions here. I watch tournament golf uh, every weekend. And at some point, a golfer is going to hit an errant tee shot or a long approach that has them up against a TV tower. 
and I'll turn to my 16-year-old son and say, he did not practice this shot on Wednesday. So over the course of four days, how many, if any, shots is a golfer likely to take that he really didn't try at any point leading up to the event? Mm, great. Uh, yeah, every week's different. Um, I'm just going to throw out, let's just say it averages probably two per event. Um, okay. You know, there was just one last week. Uh, Zach Johnson's a good friend, obviously our upcoming Ryder Cup captain, but I was on the plane leaving Colonial and I said, hey, buddy, how'd you play? And he went through, he goes, I did have one interesting one. And so I forget what hole it is now, but he hit it up against the lip of a bunker on one of the holes and he had to take his putter, uh, had to turn it backwards and had to hit it left-handed. Um, and so he had a left-handed putter from up against the lip and he chipped it, chip putted it to eight feet. He said he missed the putt, but that wasn't something that he practices hardly ever. Um, you know, you're going to have a couple where maybe a ball didn't quite go into the bunker off the tee and you're standing three feet below the ball and you're hitting one of those, um, some kind, sometimes it could be a low punch hooking six iron from underneath the tree. So I'd say I'll, uh, we'll average one to two per tournament that he hasn't practiced not only that week, but maybe not even all year. How far do you walk on a given day or during a, a tournament itself? Yeah. So I usually average around seven and a half miles a day and it's usually six days a week. So let's just say somewhere around 50 miles a day with my foundation. We used to do something called walk a mile in my shoes. We, We've negated the program now just because a little bit of a lack of interest, but I think I was averaging around 1,500 miles a year. What do you carry in the golf bag besides besides clubs, balls, and tees? Oh, boy. All right, let's go Weber first. So Weber's got a golf ball that his wife wrote a nice note to him on 14 years ago, so that stays in there. He's got a bunch of coins. Some of them are pretty personal to him. Um, he's got, uh, let's see a lot of pens for autographs. Uh, let's see ID. Uh, we always have some form of an extra towel in the bag. We've got a form of a, you know, the golf bag cover just in case out of the middle of nowhere that never comes out. Uh, we've got some practice aids as well with some alignment sticks and some strings that we use. Uh, let's see. We always have around, I'd say, let's say eight to 10 gloves, just depending on what's going on. But that, those usually stay in probably a dozen balls, uh, a bunch of snacks. Weber's a massive snack eater. He has a hard time keeping weight on, which I don't have that same issue. So he's probably got, um, anywhere between six and 10 snacks in there per day. Uh, let's see. I'm probably missing a couple of them as we're going through, but that, that's the gist, uh, that we'll have in there at any given time. What's he snacking on during the round? So he's usually like almonds. Um, he tries to stay away from peanuts as much as possible. He loves any kind of bar. So like the glow bars, uh, the man bars. Um, he's got a few other ones that he likes. He, we have a big joke. So he loves sunflower seeds. And of course I think Webb looks ridiculous because he puts them in his mouth as if he's got a big old chew in uh, a red man. And he just looks ridiculous. Here's this kind of country club kid, uh, you know, handsome guy, father of five, Christian, all this. And he's got this big, what looks like a chew in his mouth and he knows it rubs me wrong. And so he does it even more often. So that's one of the snacks that he keeps going on. Um, and he'll have some kind of like kind of fruit in there too, with a little almond butter. What's the strangest or most unique thing a golfer has ever had you carry? Strangest or most unique thing a golfer's ever had us carry. My goodness. Um, I can't really think of anything offhand. That's a boring answer, but no, just kind of, again, kind of your routine things. I can't, okay. uh, of anything I've gone through, I can't think of anything that really stood out to me. I know a lot of guys now, 
Um, they've got some kind of good luck charm. It could be a sock. It could be um, a head cover. It could be anything, but I can't think of anything strange. I personally have had to carry. Oh yes, I have VJ. Let's go back to him. So VJ in his heyday, he had this 10 pound weighted club and it was just something someone had welded for him and it weighed 10 pounds. And when he went through his massive swing chain, so go back in 2001, uh, he was still stuck on nine wins, couldn't get over the hump. And so we decided that one of the reasons why he wasn't winning golf tournaments was that he had a really shut club face at the top. So Webb had this, ten, or uh, BJ had this 10 pound heavy club. He would leave it in the bag every practice round. And after every shot he would hit, he would take the 10 pound club and walking down the fairway, he would work on a little more cut in his left wrist to kind of get the face uh, a little more square on top instead of being so shut. And so Monday, Tuesdays, and Wednesdays, I had that 10 pound club. The bag was over 60 pounds during those days and he would swing it in between. Um, and people would say, I don't know how you do it. And I would always answer two ways. Number one, I'm making a lot of money. And number two, once Thursday came around, I would be running around the golf course because I didn't <laughs> have that 10 pound weighted club in the bag anymore. We've already answered how heavy is the bag was going to be my next question. Yeah. So non rain days. So if we're out in the desert, it's around 43. And then in, you know, the, the year we've had so far with weather, it's, it's sitting somewhere around 50 with all the extra towels, extra gloves, umbrella, um, extra rain gear. It uh, adds up to about 50 pounds, you know, when we have some weather coming in. What's the toughest, toughest golf course for a caddy in terms of terrain or elements, or even in your case, past history that you've had with your player? Yeah, I'd say Augusta. Um, you know, Augusta, when they made all the changes, goodness, I'm going to say 2005. I might be a little off on when they made those changes. But when they made the big changes to Augusta, when they added the 600 yards and, you know, they took uh, uh, a lot of the uh, trees out, they they left the greens the, the same. And, you know, the golf course very quickly got a lot longer to walk, walking back to a lot of tees. It's the hilliest golf course that we walked. And the thing about Augusta is it's just a mentally draining golf course. Um, you're hitting so many long irons into very, very small undulating greens. And you've got the wind swirling around those pines. And you just don't ever really have a chance to relax. Uh, definitely physically demanding um, up there on par with any other golf course on tour. But then the most mentally demanding as well. So I'd say it's a one turn each year I look forward to the most and also the one I look forward to leaving the most when it comes to my mind and my body. And now you're reading my notes. I was going to ask the course you most look forward to going to each year. Yep. Isn't that, isn't that funny? It's the same one. Um, well, I don't know. For me, I'm a little bit strange. I grew up in Ponte Vedra. Um, you know, before TPC Sawgrass was built, um, I was out there before it was even grassed. Now the course had been laid out before it was grassed. My grandfather was good friends with the superintendent at the time, Raymond height. And so, um, I used to go out there, used to hit shots, I hit shots on 17 before there was grass on the hole, uh, the horse, you know, the hole was there, but it hadn't been sodded yet. And so for me, it's hometown. I still have friends and family here. Uh, winning there in 2018 was the highlight of my career, even over the U S open win. Um, I've been fortunate enough to win over 25 times and, you know, still the 2018 players for me was my favorite. And so I would say TPC week for me, um, it's so fun sleeping in your own bed. It's just great being around again, friends and family. And it's a tournament I, I still most want to win besides the masters. An area that I know is dear to you, Paul, is the Tesori family foundation. The foundation has been around for a number of years and I know the focus shifted slightly for you with the birth of your son eight years ago. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, absolutely. So the Tesori Family Foundation is, 
you know, for me, especially as I've gotten older, I'm 50 now. And for me and my wife, it's kind of the heart of everything that we try to do. Um, we started it 13 years ago, just to kind of give back to the local community, local food banks, local homeless shelters, and, you know, doing anything we could kind of for underprivileged youth to kind of introduce or youth to introduce the game of golf to them. And when Isaiah was born in 2014, um, Isaiah was born with Down syndrome. Um, we did not have an early diagnosis, so a little bit of a shock to us, but very quickly as that year progressed and Isaiah's story really got out, uh, we wanted to do something with golf and the special needs community. We didn't know what to do, but a good friend of ours, Mark Brazel, who was the tournament director up in Greensboro at the time, you know, recommended why not do clinics for kids with special needs. And so very quickly, we started the All-Star Kids Clinics. Uh, our first one was in 2014 in Greensboro. We've done over 50 now. Um, and, you know, we have aspirations to get that to the point that we're doing uh, 30 or 40 a year and maybe one day hand the plan book over and allow the first tees to run it. But what we do is we do a clinic for 25 kids with special needs. Um, we get one-on-one -on -one instruction with PGA Tour players, caddies, coaches, and the local first tee. Um, we're trying to introduce the game of golf to obviously the special needs community, but also just love on them a little bit. They're the all-stars. So they get a nice big medal for participating. Uh, they get a little goodie bag and they get instruction from some of the, the best in the world at it. And so anytime I can kind of marry golf uh, with what it's done for me in my life and marry the special needs community, it just makes life a little bit easier. And then we have a bunch of uh, things you can check us out on TesoriFamilyFoundation.org. Uh, we do this thing called Christmas Tree Angel where we go shop for 100 families. Um, we shop, we buy, we wrap, and we deliver. Um, a little bit of a kind of, you know, modern-day Santa Claus. But we love getting together. The volunteer list always fills up fast so we can go and, and experience that, not only as families but as a community to get back. And then my wife started something called the Buddy Basket Program, which is where we just want people to celebrate the birth of their kids. And too often when you do have a child born, or born with some kind of difficulty, there's no chance to celebrate. You're very quickly told all the things that are wrong with your child. And we've just experienced in our own lives, no, we want to celebrate this birth. Yeah, we're going to have difficulties like anybody does, but let's celebrate. So we'll give them a nice big uh, basket worth about $2,500 just so they can go and enjoy the birth of their kids. So we love the foundation. Uh, we've been able to uh, raise and give back over $2 million so far in the first 13 years. And we just look forward to continuing to make that grow and, and make a difference any way we can. Once again, information on the foundation can be found at TesoriFamilyFoundation.org. Uh, Paul, what haven't you done in the game yet? What's still on the bucket list for you? So back to my Bubba Watson thing early on. So when Webb wins a golf tournament, we do something well. We always get the same text. Weber, great job. Paul, you're still 0 for 17. And what he's uh, referring to is my PGA Tour record. I played in 17 events. I never made a cut. And so... I just turned 50. I've been playing really, really well. Just finished fifth in the Florida Senior Open. And I want to qualify for the U.S. Senior Open or I want to qualify for a senior tour event and, and make a check so I can get Bubba off my back. And I was scheduled to try to qualify for the U.S. Senior Open this year. I just turned 50, but Webb added Colonial. And as my wife likes to say, those gift certificates aren't paying the bills. And so <laughs> I, I needed to go to work. But anyway, that's still my goal is to qualify for a senior tour event um, or the U.S. Senior Opening, make the cut, and just so I can say, Bubba, I made one. No matter what you got for me, I made one. And so as a player, that's my goal. And as a caddy, I just – you know, I just want to continue to see whoever I'm working for. Hopefully it's Weber for a long time, be successful. So as many team events as we can make, 
I'd still like to make, I've been able to do 11 team events in my career. I'd like to get to 15. That's kind of my goal um, would be to get to 15. And I think that would be a pretty, a pretty cool number to get to, to say that I've been able to help my players get to that point. If you qualify for a senior tour event, you absolutely have to be paired with Jerry Kelly. That would be great. I think Jerry would love that. I really do. And I really don't know if I could handle it because I think that he would take <laughs> the opportunity, probably kind of jaw at me a little bit and say, yeah, a lot harder than you thought in Nepal. Hey, come on out. Um, I think Jerry would enjoy that, that aspect of it. Follow this man on Twitter at Paul Tesori. 22,000 followers can't be wrong. My guest has been PGA Tour caddy, Paul Tesori. Paul, thank you so much for your time. Mark, thanks for having me on. Thanks for the SGCA, for everything that you guys do as well. And uh, anytime you need anything, just don't hesitate to call. That wraps up this episode of ASGCA Insights. I'm Mark Whitney. You can find past episodes of the podcast and more information about golf course architecture at ASGCA.org or download past insights podcasts from Apple, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. Thanks for listening. And until next time, so long.